morning, Africa. Welcome to Daybreak Africa from the Voice of America. I'm Douglas Impoga in Washington. Today is Monday, December 26th, and here are some of the stories we are covering. Inflation and the effects of war, climate change, and COVID-19 pushed millions more people into food insecurity. That means any critical news or any news that is deemed critical to the government is not allowed now. Some journalists, including my colleagues, are now thinking what could be the better strategy. Journalists in Somalia are contemplating options how best to cover the country following the government's latest restrictive measures. Just a general hospital, no even ARVs. Where are we going? We are tired of going to the chemistries. Zambia's health officials say scores of patients are dying weekly as hospitals have only half the medicine they need. Those are more coming up on Daybreak Africa. The United Nations says high food prices in the year 2022 led to a crisis of affordability that has pushed millions more people into hunger. VOA UN correspondent Bagrat Bashir talks to experts about the situation and what to expect in 2023. 349 million. That's the number of people on the planet who don't know where they'll get their next meal, according to the UN's World Food Program. And the number is growing. The agency says by the end of this year, it will have fed a record 150 million of the most vulnerable. Experts say a combination of factors is driving food insecurity. The COVID-19 pandemic, conflicts, climate shocks, including historic floods and droughts, energy prices, and Russia's February 24th invasion of Ukraine. Arif Hussein is the chief economist for the World Food Program. But even before the war in Ukraine, the food price were at a 10-year high earlier this year. Fuel was at a seven-year high. We were already talking about inflation. So when this war came on Ukraine, it magnified everything. In part because Ukraine and Russia are breadbaskets for dozens of countries. Will Martin is a senior research fellow at the Washington-based International Food Policy Research Institute. Ukraine and Russia are important players in production, world wheat production. Their market shares are about 4 and 8%. Um, and a much bigger share um, in world exports. So if you don't have freely flowing grain from the Black Sea Basin, um, then you're going to have uh, very big problems uh, outside The war also drove energy prices up on fears of supply disruptions and sanctions on Russia's oil and gas exports. Fertilizer prices are up 250 percent from 2019, according to the UN. Half of global food production relies on fertilizer, and small farmers who cannot afford enough have seen their harvests decline. Again, Arif Hussein, the WFP's chief economist. Right now, with all that is happening, we are looking at essentially a shortfall of about 66 million tons of staple foods because of shortage of or or unaffordability of fertilizer. I'm talking about crops like uh, wheat, corn, uh, rice. 
Now, that 66 million tons of food, that is enough to feed 3.6 billion people for one month. Looking ahead to 2023, food security experts are watching fertilizer availability and weather. Maximo Torero is the chief economist for the UN Food and Agriculture Organization. In the case of wheat and corn, it will depend a lot on what happens with the weather. Argentina, for example, right now has some issues of, of weather which could be affecting the harvest, and that's something that we are observing very closely. The same could be happening in the U.S. The uninterrupted flow of grain and fertilizer from Russia and Ukraine under the Black Sea grain deal will remain critical to global food security. Rice is the primary staple food for half the planet, and experts are closely watching production. FAO's Maximo Torero. In case of rice, we are already observing a reduction in the supply because of lower planting. But rice, luckily, we have a lot of stocks because the previous years were pretty good. Economists say the strong U.S. dollar is increasing monetary pressures on dozens of poorer countries who are import-dependent and need debt relief. WFP's Hussein. If you're a poor country, if you're highly indebted, if you happen to import your food, your fuel, or your fertilizer, you are in trouble. Amid the rise in food insecurity, the UN recently named its first famine prevention and response coordinator to lead its system-wide response. Margaret Bashir, VOA News, the United Nations. The Secretary General of the Somali Journalists Syndicate, an umbrella organization for media in Somalia, says some journalists are contemplating options how best to cover the country following the government's latest restrictive measure. Last week, the Somali President's Communication Office announced that local news outlets submit their content to the government before it's aired. Abdel Mumin says some journalists are considering leaving Somalia, while others are silent because they are worried about their personal safety. He says he was detained in October this year after the syndicate criticized another government directive about coverage of the security operations against Al-Shabaab. Now Abdale tells VOA's James Bate he cannot travel out of Somalia because his passport was confiscated. The government new directive is indeed a new form of restriction. It is a censorship. The reaction of the journalists and media directors here is very tense. It's like no one can speak. No journalist can cover ongoing issues, including the ongoing conflict between the militant group and the security forces. The government has also now restricted reporting about corruption, government officials' wrongdoings, and human rights violations. That means any critical news or any news that is deemed critical to the government is not allowed now. Some journalists, including my colleagues, are now thinking what could be the better strategy. Some others are leaving the country because they see that if they go to a different country, they can continue reporting Somalia safely. Others are just silent. So according to the new directive, uh, the government wants to approve all content before it goes on air. 
Does this apply only to journalists working for government-run media or both private and public? The new directive affects all media houses, including private and independent media houses. The new directive is intended to censor content that can be critical to the government. Some of the media houses that have just received this directive are worried about their safety because if they continue disregarding the new directive, they might be targeted, they can be detained, jailed for long term, or even the station is closed down. Now, Abdallah, let's talk about your situation. You say you are under restrictions. Can you describe those restrictions for us? I was detained on 11 of October, just because after we issued a public press statement, which raised concern about the new government directive, the directive which restricts independent media coverage on the ongoing security operations. I was taken to different uh, detention centers. I was first detained by the national intelligence, and then I was held at the police custody. I was then taken to the court. There are no official way to counter what the government says. For example, in my case, as the media organization, journal association, we raised concern about the government directive, and that is why I was detained. Until today, I am under restrictions. I cannot travel. My passport has been confiscated. I was ordered not to speak publicly, meaning that I cannot criticize the government. I'm facing a court hearing which will take place on January 4th, 2023. I don't know what will happen then. I have a family in Nairobi. I haven't seen my children and, and, and wife for uh, three months now, and I cannot travel because the government does not want me to travel out of the, of the country. And the government doesn't want me to continue doing my journalism. On 15th of November, the Ministry of Information brought two new conditions in return for my freedom. Number one, they want me to quit journalism and stop criticizing the government. Number two, they want an apology to our statement. They want that we write an apology letter to the government saying that we will not criticize them, which we refuse it. All of this indicate only that the Somali authorities are using heavy-handed measures to stop independent media coverage on the ongoing security operations. That was Abdel Momin, the Secretary General of the Somali Journalists Syndicate, an umbrella organization for media in Somalia. He was speaking with my colleague James Bate from Mogadishu. Meanwhile, Somalia's military says it killed 67 Al-Shabaab militants in an overnight battle in the middle Shabele region, where government forces last week took back the last local village held by the group. Mohamed Sheikh Noor reports from Mogadishu, Somalia. Brigadier General Mohamed Tahlil Bihi, commander of Somali Infantry Forces, tells the state broadcasters 67 Al-Shabaab militants were killed in a planned operation carried out by Danan, a Somali army unit with international support, which lasted through the early hours of Friday morning. 
While Tahlil did not provide details regarding possible troop casualties, he did confirm El Ba'ad and other surrounding settlements are now under control of the Somali government. We have so far inflicted 67 deaths upon them. However, the number of injuries they sustained is much greater than that. And usually, when battles occur, more injuries are sustained. So they also sustained a great number of injuries. Our forces seized land from them and are now clearing the site where they were killed. We are now collecting their weapons as well as the bodies that they left behind. Al-Shabaab has not responded to the claims. Meanwhile, gunfire erupted in the Berdale neighborhood of Baidawa town, the provincial capital of Southwest administration, after state Darawish forces clashed with militias loyal to opposition groups. The violence took place while there are heated differences between elected regional officials and opposition groups, which say the term of regional president Abdulaziz Laftagaren has expired. Laftagaren insists the regional parliament has guaranteed him a one-year extension. The latest confrontation occurred after government forces attacked the home of former finance minister Mohammed Adam Fargeti, a Laftagaren opponent. In a Facebook post, Fargeti said he was being attacked by heavily armed government forces in a battle that was still ongoing. At least five people have died, including residents and parties involved in the conflict. An unspecified number of people have been injured. Even though the fighting has stopped, the situation remains tense. Somalia's federal government has released a statement urging all parties to resolve their issues at the negotiation table and to stop all confrontations immediately. Mohamed Sharnour for VOA News, Mogadishu, Somalia. You are listening to Daybreak Africa on The Voice of America. I'm Douglas Impoga in Washington. Today is Monday, December 26th, and still to come on our program, shortage of essential drugs in Zambia. Zambia's Medical Association last week urged the government to declare national emergency due to a shortage of essential drugs. Zambian health officials say scores of patients are dying weekly as hospitals have only half the medicine they need. The government has blamed corruption and poor hospital management for the shortage, which the association denies. Kathy Short reports from Lusaka, Zambia. Zambia Medical Association General Secretary Kaumba Roy Tolopu decried the country's shortage of drugs in health facilities. He told VOA Friday that current stock levels were far below the World Health Organization WHO recommendation of having drugs available at least 70% of the time they are needed. The finding that over the nine months period under review, essential medicines were only available 40.2% of the time in tertiary and general hospitals and 23.3% in rural centers and health posts calls for deep introspection by government on its struggling health policy and due consideration to be given to declaration of a state of emergency in the health sector in order to invoke disaster management provisions in the procurement of essential drugs and allied substances. 
A parliamentary report released last week showed 3,500 of Zambia's 4,000 health centers were short of medicines, including those for treating pain, diabetes and high blood pressure. The report said the three drug suppliers in the country lacked the capacity to procure the needed amounts. Zambia in March terminated contracts with nine other medical suppliers for alleged corruption in the procurement process, sparking the shortage. Zambia's ruling United Party for National Development rejected the report and blamed the situation on corruption and drug pilfering, an accusation the Zambia Medical Association dismissed. President Hakainde Hichilema at a press conference Monday cited poor hospital management. He said it was unacceptable for hospitals to be short on medicine when money meant to procure the drugs was sitting in the bank. The funding has increased phenomenally to the health sector. We should see the translation of that in more medicines and equipment for our people. These issues we've identified, we would like to improve contract management issues, the issues of margins around there, the issues of lead times. Chitalu Chilofia is an opposition patriotic front lawmaker and Zambia's former Minister of Health. He told VOA the government was trivializing the shortage of medicines needed to save lives. Week 48, we lost 21 women. Pregnant women. Week 39, we lost 16. Week 35, we lost 15. Records are there. Numbers don't lie. It simply means 18 to 20 women dying every week out of preventable maternal death, maternal conditions, pregnancy. This is a shame. Zambia's clinics and hospitals have been forced to tell patients to go elsewhere to get needed medicines. Shadrach Ahamabulo is a diabetic patient from Mazabuka, a farming town south of Lusaka. He tells VOA he cannot afford to buy his medicine from private pharmacies or chemists. Just a general hospital, no even ARVs. Where are we going? We are tired of going to the chemistries. Zambia's government has vowed to provide access to cost-effective, quality health services. But in a country struggling with inadequate clinics, where many rural patients must walk long distances to get treatment, the drug shortage is only making health care worse. Kathy Short for VOA News, Lusaka, Zambia. The Gambian government said Wednesday authorities foiled a military coup attempt and arrested four soldiers plotting to overthrow President Adama Barrow's administration. The Gambian army arrested four soldiers linked to the alleged coup after a military operation on Tuesday, according to the statement. Coup attempts are not unheard of in the Gambia, a country nearly surrounded by Senegal, a country that is emerging from over two decades under the authoritarian rule of former President Yaha Jame. Jame himself seized power in a coup in 1994 and foiled several coup attempts. Said Matejo is a political science lecturer at the University of the Gambia and executive director of the Center for Research and Policy Development. He tells VOA's Caravan Dam. There's growing frustration with Barrow's government for its failure to address a poverty and soaring food costs. He also describes the arrested individuals. There is still one or two that are still missing. So the names they've given, uh, most of the people that they have given are lance corporals and sergeants from the Navy uh, and other branches of the military. So, so far they have made uh, about four arrests, uh, including um, the alleged ringleader. But there is also two that are still on the, on the run, according to the government statement. Were any of these or all of these people that they named, do they have connections to the former president? Uh, well, that is not 
clear. Um, like I said, uh, we, we, we don't know much, but most of, I think, the, the, the son of the leader was a student at the UTG, um, and the other guys were also students from the, from the university. So we don't know uh, what sort of connection they have with the, with the former president. But of course, there are many people that are also trying to uh, link, it, link it to him, but uh, we're, we're not sure. Well, how would you describe the political situation right now in the Gambia? Yes, the, the political situation is, is, is calm, uh, of course, polarized. Uh, there is a lot of, um, you know, uh, political going around. There are also challenges around issues of transitions that were set up by this current government, uh, particularly on issues of a constitution and all those things. I think people are likely frustrated around about the limited um, progress that have been made so far since the departure of the government. There's still no constitution, um, security sector reform also. Um, just this, you know, a lot of people are blaming this recent incident perhaps on the lack of um, reform in the security sector as well. So, so there are a lot of those issues that are still pending that needs to be done. So does it seem to you at least that most of the people, the majority of people support the president and, and the current administration? Well, of course, uh, the president was re-elected. President Barrow was re-elected in, in, in December with 53% of the, of the vote. That's site Marty Joe, political science lecturer at the University of the Gambia and executive director of the Center for Research and Policy Development in Serukunda. He was speaking with my colleague Carvan Dam. It's now time for Daybreak Africa Sports and here is Samson Omali in Abuja, Nigeria. A very good Monday morning to you, Samson. Good Monday morning to you too, Douglas. We begin the sports with boxing as Ugandans will on Monday be treated to the long-awaited rumble in Kampala main fight between Kazim the Dream Ouma and Kenya's rating Boom Boom Okwiri. The Boxing Day fight will see Ouma, the former IBF junior middleweight world champion, take on Okwiri, the two-time Kenyan champion in a 10-round middleweight contest. Ouma has been involved in as many as 47 fights of these. He has won 29 bouts, 18 by knockouts and 11 by decision, 16 losses, 4 by knockouts and 12 by decision and 1 draw. I'm here to show you Ugandans what I can do and what I can pull and what, has le- what I have left in my tank and whatever you guys decide is on. A fight of two people, there's no stand out, there's no sitting down. So it's going to be a fight, war between me and the Kenyan. Yeah, you can expect a good boxing. If a knockout comes, will you take it, but I expect a good boxing and a fine boxing that I always watch on TV. His opponent, Ray Tinopiri from Kenya, has fought six times with five wins, four knockouts, and one by decision with one draw. Any, any boxer who steps in the ring is a good boxer. Anyone who steps in the ring is a good, he's good to go. But to, according to my experience and what I have, solved, uh, I, I have observed him, I, I, the fight is not, going be, is not going beyond eight rounds. Well, that's what I can say. This will be Owuma's first ever professional fight in Uganda and the second on the African continent after the bout against Adam Katuma that was held in Okapi Hotel Kigali, Rwanda. In Kenya, over 180 players have registered for the Kenyan National Chess Championship to be held from the 26th to the 30th of December at the Charter Hall in Nairobi. Among them are 11 players living with disabilities who will all be competing for the top prize, which is a brand new car. The 2022 edition of the competition will be used to select the national team for the following year's event. 
In table tennis news, the longest sports tournament in Nigeria, the annual Aswo Joba Table Tennis Cup, which has been rechristened Molade Okoya Thomas Table Tennis Championship, is set to serve off on December 27th. The 54th edition of the Table Tennis Tournament will feature the women's and men's singles, doubles and mixed doubles alongside the para table tennis categories. Speaking at a press conference to unveil plans for this year's championship, Deji Okoya Thomas said the tournament has been responsible for producing Nigeria's top table tennis players. This is a grassroots competition and we are hoping that the impact is had over the years will be same going into the future and more players will be discovered for the state. And that's it on Daybreak Africa Sports. I am Samson Omale in Abuja, Nigeria. It's back to you, Douglas, in Washington. Thank you, Samson. Have a good Monday. And that's it for this Monday, December 26th edition of Daybreak Africa.